So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's in the Old Testament. Now, um, if you're not uh, familiar much with 1 Samuel, it's an important book in the Old Testament because 1 Samuel chapter 8 specifically is a major transition point in the Old Testament. It's a major transition point in the Old Testament where Israel goes from being led by God as king to be asking to move to ask for a worldly or human king. And that's an important season and moment in the Old Testament as we move towards ultimately the coming of Messiah. You and I were created by God to worship God. And in our worship of God, it brings glory to God because it shows God's value and worth to the world around us. We were made even more so to enjoy God by worshiping God. We were made to worship. The reality is, it's it's not that we have a worship problem. We all worship something or someone. And so it's not an issue of worship in the sense of worshiping. If you go to the stadium, and like I said, we live across the street from the stadium, haven't been here uh, in, in football season yet, but what I've heard, people laugh and say, oh, you live across from the stadium. Oh, that's going to be interesting for you. So we are preparing and insulating our entire house. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, we are looking forward to uh, that celebration, but, but when you go to a football game, it's like a worship service. Now, I'm grateful you all haven't put on your war paint this morning, uh, Redeemer's colors of a light blue and black, and haven't painted your face with the splotchy cross that we have. That'd be interesting. We'll see if Patrick will do it next week. Uh, but, but ultimately, we were made to worship. We enjoy worshiping. The challenge is, is a lot of times our worship is off. John Piper says about missions, he says, missions exist because proper worship doesn't. And so then we have to ask, well, then what is worship? And I'll quote a, uh, an older professor. He said this, worship is giving our attention, our affection, and our allegiance to someone or something. You can tell he was a Southern Baptist professor because of the alliteration. Your attention, your affection, your allegiance. Whoever or whatever gets your attention, your affection, and your allegiance, your loyalty, is who or what you worship. And so my main point this morning is really a question for you and I. Who or what do we worship? What captures our attention? What grabs our affections? And what in our lives, our lives demands our loyalties? So pick up with me, if you will, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So we have to understand, looking back, that the people of Israel had forgotten, and that's a common theme throughout the Old Testament, and a common theme, I think, in most of our lives, but the people of Israel had forgotten God's persistent faithfulness toward them. 
through the wandering of the desert by taking them through the wilderness by a pillar of smoke or a pillar of fire. By him taking a rock and allowing it to be broken open and giving them water to drink. By providing manna in the wilderness. And when they got tired of the carbs and wanted some meat, he gave them quail. God had always been a faithful king to provide for his people. He had always been a faithful warrior king to protect and go ahead of his people. And he had always been a valuable God and king who is of infinite worth and worthy of worship. Yet at this point, the people of Israel were no longer content to have God as their king. They wanted to be like all the other nations around them, like the Philistines. They wanted to have a warrior king that would go before them and protect them. They had this false sense and idea that if they had a worldly king, that they would be better off and more suited to thrive physically and economically. And it's easy to look back through the lens of the gospel and be hard on these people. But it is also worth our while to humble ourselves and be honest with the fact that we are just like these folks. Many of us have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Many of us have experienced his salvation and his work in our lives. Many of us can wake up in the morning and look next to us and say, God, you are so kind and faithful. Amen, guys? And guys, if you, if you got elbowed, you deserve it. But we can see God's faithful provision around us, yet we forget. We look to people and to things to be what satisfies and gives us a sense of life and living. And these people were looking around, and, and we were seeing historically Samuel, a faithful priest, a prophet... Yet his sons did not walk in his ways. He was a righteous man, called by God at a young age. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 3. He had led God's people to repentance. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 7. And in 1 Samuel 8, they come to him, and his sons were perverting justice. At the time, the priests would appoint other judges to rule over Israel, much like our court system today, but they would do it as they would say in-house and more as a sacred profession. But these young men, these men, his sons... They were not being just. They were not being fair. They were taking bribes. And I know we don't experience that today in courts or universities. Too soon? But that is concerning. For after all, God's people who serve a just God, long for justice. But people with money and people with power wanted to pervert justice to sway it in their own favor. And so I can understand their concern. I can understand the temptation. But it came to a point where Samuel's sons were not cutting it, And so the other people came to them, the elders of Israel, the leaders of Israel came and said, appoint for us a king, give us a king, give us someone that we can follow and that will do for us and care for us and love us and protect us, that will fight our battles, that will provide food for us to eat. They were looking around them and not up. 
It goes on in verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you. Look at this church. But they, re- they have rejected me from being king over them. The rejection that was happening, the people were pointing to Samuel's sons. But the actual rejection that was taking place was not of Samuel nor of his sons, but they were rejecting God. Now, this was a common and frequent occurrence throughout the Old Testament story. We made it to the third chapter of the entire book before humanity rebelled. But think about that. You're praying to God. You're saying, God, man, this this bothers me. He says, hey, don't take it personally. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So on one hand, if you think about it, that could bring relief for Samuel. But that should also bring a vast sense of devastation. Church, when we evangelize and share the gospel with people and they reject the gospel, they're not just rejecting us. They're rejecting God. And no offense, but rejecting you is not a big deal compared to rejecting God. And so this is just a caveat. We'll talk about parenting some other time. But but parents, it's easy for us to feel offended when our kids are sinning against us. But understand, if they are not obeying their parents, they're sinning against a holy and perfect and righteous and just God. Spouses, when your spouse is sinning against you, while it might hurt, we must understand and care for their soul that their sin against you, yes, it hurts, but it's far more offensive to the Holy King. And so one of the ways that we can bear with our children and bear with our spouses is by understanding that their sin, while it hurts us, is ultimately offending their maker. And when we can mature to a point where our anger then matures to fear and care and concern, we're heading in the right direction. So this thing, it concerned Samuel, but God said, give them what they want. Obey them. What they ask for, give it to them. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. For those of us in ministry leadership or those of us who are heads of our home or those of us leading in places, our primary concern as followers of Jesus is that when people are not rightly acknowledging Jesus as king, They are in grave danger. That's where humility can come in, where it's no longer just focused on, oh, they're rejecting me. No, they are rejecting God. Verse 9, Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So fine, Give them what they want, but before you do so, warn them. Make sure they understand, is this what you really want? I mean, he's teeing them up, guys. I mean, he's coming to them and saying, hey, look, okay, fine. We will provide 
them for what they think they want. We will allow them to go this course. We will permit them to go this way. And if you're just reading in isolation right here, not taking the whole story of Scripture, this might be confusing why God is permitting and has ordained for them to have an earthly king. The story gets worse before it gets better. Solemnly, seriously. Students, you, you know that, kids, you know that point when your parents, something changes in their voice and how they look? Some might call it crazy look, but they change in the tone. They start using parts of your name that aren't common. You know, it's really bad when they start forgetting your name. They're so flustered. But that moment when someone slows down and looks at you and says, you need to understand the importance of this. This is what God is saying. Give them a fighting chance that their heart might be swayed, but knowing that it wasn't going to be until much, much later. If you have a pen or a pencil and you like taking little notes, this is worthy in your copy of Scripture to capture every time the word take, the English word take is used in this passage. See, our Heavenly Father is a God who gives. But in this morning, we see a lot of taking. Verse 10, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for your but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Take, 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 take. In those days, what they would do is the king would then gather the young men and make them into warriors and then send the warriors into war and let them give their lives. And then once the victory was won, the warrior king would then ride up in his chariot afterwards with the flag and take all the glory. So he would take from the people to build an illusion of glory that might reflect upon his power. So he would then elevate and create a sense of glory at their expense. He would take your daughters and make them perfumers to... It's kind of like the essential oil diffusers now, right? But these people would go and, and, and bring incense and, and, and add a certain aroma to give this manufactured sense of beauty and goodness and glory and authority and power. This would be very costly for these people. Instead of going ahead, if we remember in the Old Testament, God went ahead of his people to claim victory over battles and handed them victories. Now the king would send them into battle and then he would come afterwards and take all the glory. 
clear warning. When you remove the Lord as king and start living as is right in your own sight, there are consequences. Pursuing joy in created things rather than the creator of joy will leave you empty and broken and wandering and lost. So he warns him, hey, he's, he's going to take from you. He's going to take your, your children. He's going to take your crops. He's going to take your servants. All to be used at his disposal for his glory. That's what he's going to do for you. And he warned him. Verse 18. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. There will be a moment where you realize the mistake you have made and there will be no answer. Man, this is a warm, fuzzy passage, isn't it? It's just, wow. And so they came to their right minds and changed their minds and said, hold on. No, verse 19. But the people... Refused. Underline, circle it. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. See, everyone complained about how secularism came into the world the last few decades. That's been an ongoing problem, friends. We're not some unique snowflake generation that all of a sudden secularism is going to creep in. I mean, I know we don't long for a president that's going to make all things right and give our lives to that or our money or our time. The greatest need our nation has is not going to be solved by a man or a woman. But we give ourselves to it, don't we? The numbers and the lengths of zeros in your bank account isn't going to deliver your soul. And the reality is, is most people today, if we're honest with ourselves, our king whomever we see in the mirror. We believe we are the king or queen of our life. And therefore we fight so that we can take. We fight so that we can protect our glory and image. We fight so that all of our comforts might be provided for. I mean, if you think about it, most of us, we organize our entire lives. I'm not sitting here pointing at y'all. I'm saying we, for safety, for security, for comfort, for provision, and for protection. And when that is violated, we not only shake our fist at the paid representatives who are supposed to do that for us, but we also shake our fist at God. 
It's interesting. I, I have a pastor friend of mine whose church nearly split over the presidential elections. He had families in severe marital counseling over division in their home over who to vote for for president. I'm not saying that to make fun. I'm saying that as a temperature of where our hope is as the people of God. If you please, please read the Bible. I'm, I'm not saying this to be condescending. Please read the Bible because the story gets worse. Before it gets better. Yeah, we put our hope in elected officials and we put our hope in our spouse. Look, your spouse is meant mostly to help you become more holy. Not to meet all of your created needs. Your children are not meant to be glory bearers of you. They are created to be image bearers of their father in heaven. But when we get our minds so locked in on having to protect our image and our family's image and our children's image and our church's image and all these image protection, we miss the fact that, hey, no, we represent a king who is far superior than our very best day. And who chose in his kindness to adopt us as sons and daughters at a very costly price so that we might be a part of his kingdom. But most of the time when we present the gospel, we invite people to invite God into their kingdom. And my prayer is, I pray God destroys our little kingdoms for the good of his. They, they refused. They said, no, no, no. This is the promise that we're believing is going to happen. Give it to us. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And if you haven't read in the Old Testament in a while, I encourage you just to get a study Bible and skim over what happens after 1 Samuel 8. They have some bad kings, and then they have some good kings, and they have some very wicked kings, and they have a whole bunch of in-between kings. And you might be wondering, King David, a man after God's own heart, who commits adultery, commits murder, gets confronted by a prophet, repents, and other, his kids are wicked, and you're like, what is God up to until we see the descendant of David come named Jesus, who's fully God, but also fully man. And as you see this lineage unfold of the kings of Israel, the ultimate king of Israel who came, who actually is God and is man, to fulfill God's promises and to win God's battles and to care for God's people to rescue us, we can be then delivered from the tyranny of a worldly king to the kingdom of an eternal God. You see, we can notice that there's three primary things that human kings do. Human kings, they take. They take from us. They require of us. They're life-taking, not life-giving. The second thing we see is that human kings will sell you out for their own glory. They'll send you into battle. They'll take from you. They'll, they don't care. You exist for the human king or the earthly king, its glory. Whatever you're worshiping, you're glorifying. So worldly kings, human kings, they take from you. They require from you. 
Whether you're young and you're in a dating relationship or you're in marriage or you're an employee or whatever you're doing, whatever you're giving your worship to, it's going to take. It's going to sell you out. I still remember, I was a pretty young man when Enron went under. And watching that guy, I don't even know the guy's name, on the news holding his box, and he's like, my life is in this box. His entire savings, his entire retirement, everything, gone. He put all his life into one organization. That organization took from him and sold him out for their own benefit and glory. That's a warning for us. That's what worldly kings do. Created things were never meant to satisfy us as a creator was. Created things, the good created things, point us back to the giver, the the, the God, the king. It's a reflection of, a reminder of his glory. See, human kings, the third thing we see is they create their own glory. They, They give an illusion of glory at the people's expense. And in the same way uh, that the people of Israel needed to be warned of what exactly they're getting themselves into by longing for a human king, we must be reminded as God's people as well. We too have frequent temptations to find our value and our worth and our hope and our life and our joy in created things. And allowing our point of view and our understanding to be the holy authority of our lives. And that was never intended to be our source of life and joy. But we see that through the air of King David, Jesus came. When we see Jesus as king, we see a a king that provides. He not only provides our physical needs, but he provides us a way to be reconciled to God now and forevermore. Jesus provides a way for us to be saved from our sin, which leads to eternal death, rescued from it, not by putting up the cash, but giving over his life. And so he provides for his people through sacrifice. We also see that Jesus protects what is his. That which is his, he will not lose. He will not hand over. He will not give back. He will not allow you to run too far away. The way I see grace working out and life around us, and any, any analogy or illustration is, is weak compared to an eternal king. But y'all remember back in the day where people used to put leashes on their kids at the mall? Y'all remember that? If you're older now, you might be like, my parents maybe do that. Whatever, but we'll have counseling for that. But that's how I, at least in my 20 plus years of walking with Jesus, that's kind of how grace has felt. There's been enough leash to get out there and bump a little bit and mess up, but, but the Lord's grace draws us back. The king flexes at the right time to remind us that he's king and we're not. And that's what makes me so frightened for people who weekly or monthly or semi-annually go to church and believe they're followers of Christ, yet their hearts have no affection for God or his kingdom. Their thoughts are not captured by, hey, my life is going that direction or it's not. They're not even bothered by it. They're not concerned that when they sin that they are missing joy meant to be found in Christ. And and, and that's when I start becoming frightened for people. And that's when Romans 1 becomes more haunting to me where God hands people over and their sin because they refuse to trust in Him and hear from Him. 
Any day bring a sinner in who's wrestling with their temptation and struggling with their sin and realizing that they're not on the path that they need to be going. Bring that person. And if you're that person, you're in the right place because we're all falling forward. But if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I'm doing pretty well right now. I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm, 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 I'm concerned for you. Because you're not leaning on a relationship with a sovereign king. You're relying on your religious behavior. And that will let you down and deceive you. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, well, go mess up so that grace might abound. No. But I'm saying all of us are continually in need of realignment with our king who provides for us, who protects us, Remember when Jesus in Matthew tells his disciples, don't fear man who can only destroy your body, but fear the one who can destroy your body and your soul in hell. Realigning our our fear and our focus. And the last thing we can see is that when God is king, while a worldly king, an earthly king, will create his glory at, at the people's expense, God protects his glory for the people's good. God protects his glory for the people's good. Let me unpack that briefly for you. I heard John Piper say this one time, and it blew my mind. I'm still wrestling with it at times. He said this, if God were to value you or me or anything else higher than he values himself, he would no longer be fit to be God because he'd be an idolater. Chew on that for lunch. If God were to value anything or anyone higher than he values himself as a supreme being, as the ultimate sovereign eternal king, then he would be no longer fit to be God. Because he is most valuable. He's most beautiful. He's most faithful. He is outlasting our worst day. He's outperforming our best. He is our Alpha. He is our Omega. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one that makes broken things whole. He brings far things near. He gives hope to the hopeless. He brings power to the powerless. Jesus, as King, must guard his glory for our good. And so God is not going to change who he is to match your preferences. I saw an article pop up the other day in a religious magazine saying that people are believing they need to change up the gospel story to make it more appealing. No offense, but the story of the gospel is not what needs to change. If the gospel has no power, then we can change it. But since the gospel has all the power, we must proclaim it. And so I ask you, church family, who or what is your king? What captures your mind attention, your mind's attention, your heart's affection, your life's allegiance? Who or what are you loyal to? Who or what causes you to be happy or not? Who or what is the source of your joy? Because the good news is this, that Jesus is the Son of Man, fully man, fully God and King of kings. As Jesus says of himself when talking to Pontius Pilate in John 18, 37, then Pilate said to him, so are 
You are a king, and Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And church, your king is calling you today. Your king is calling you to forfeit all other kings. Your king is inviting you to experience more joy in him. Your king is inviting you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If we say that Jesus is our king, but are not following his rule, we're deceiving ourselves. Because Jesus is our king, we have the power and the freedom to obey his rule. And in that place is a place we find joy.